Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. So this episode is in large part about the Indigenous Mapping Workshop coming up November 1st through the 5th, 2021. And I just wanted to let you all know about that before we even started the episode, because if it's something that you might be interested in, you should go check it out right away because it is coming up in less than two weeks from now. So November 1st through the 5th. So again, if you're interested, go to indigenousmaps.com to learn more about the Indigenous Mapping Workshop and the Indigenous Mapping Collective, which is free for Indigenous people, Indigenous nations, and Indigenous organizations. So again, just wanted to throw this out there out front so that you didn't start the episode and then miss the workshop because you hadn't finished the episode before the the sign up <laughs> what ran out anyways again indigenous mapping workshop november 1st through the 5th indigenousmaps.com thanks everyone Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 56. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about indigenous mapping and how the one that holds the pen tells the story. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nooch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. And today we have Steve DeRoy on the show. Steve is from the Buffalo Clan, is Anishinaabe Soto, and a member of the Ebb and Flow First Nation from Manitoba, Canada. He's the co-founder, director, and past president of the Firelight Group. Steve founded the annual Indigenous Mapping Workshop with technology partnerships including Google, Esri, Mapbox, and NASA. So welcome to the show, Steve. Chimikwech for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm so excited to have you. So you were actually highly recommended by a past guest from the podcast, uh, Dr. Ashley Spivey. So very excited to finally have you on the show and to really dig into mapping, which I know people are really interested in hearing more about. So I'm excited to have you and excited to learn more about the Indigenous Mapping Workshop that you guys have coming up. Absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure to be recommended. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, of course. To Ashley. Yes. Hi, Ashley, if you're listening. To get us started, let's start with, with how you got into this field. What got you interested in GIS? Yeah. What, what brought you to this kind of work? Absolutely. Well, I kind of fell into mapping. It wasn't something that I had planned on doing. And I had a neighbor where I grew up. He, I grew up in Niagara, close to Niagara Falls, Canada. Hmm. And my neighbor across the street worked for the USG, uh, U.S. Geological Service, or survey for uh, the United States in Buffalo. And he would travel back and forth. And um, he, was, he was talking to my parents one day, and they sa- he said, 
you know, there's this new field called GIS. And they said, you know, if your son's interested in computers and and this art of map making, then uh, he should really look into it. And and at the time, I, I mean, I uh, computers, desktop computers were becoming a thing. And, and I loved art. And I just love the idea of blending these two uh, pieces together to form cartography. And so I looked into the program and there was a program in Southern Ontario, uh, north of Toronto, Canada. And I, I applied for it and kind of started studying it and learning about the art of map making. And it wasn't until my third year that I realized that I really wanted to focus my attention on Indigenous mapping. Uh, at the time, no one was really talking about uh, Indigenous people's use of maps and so I decided I was on a mission to to build this discipline of Indigenous mapping. Yeah. So what, okay, so this discipline of Indigenous mapping, when you were first thinking about it, what did you think that that would look like? To be honest, I, I, I didn't have any vision for it. I had been uh, learning about the art of making maps and learning about how to use maps to tell stories and uh, so when I graduated, I, uh, I worked for uh, about a decade in this field. And I worked for various organizations like, uh, like a hydro company, and I worked for a city, and I worked for uh, some consulting organizations and some NGOs. And, that, and what I really tried to do was surround myself with people that were already working in this field that were doing interesting work. And, and I just felt that by being like close to them and learning about this, that I, some of that would feed, you know, would feed the work that I was trying to build. And so I got into this, this idea that Indigenous peoples are often at the center point of being researched and being researched to death in some cases. And oftentimes the story is being told by people outside of the community. So not necessarily by Indigenous peoples themselves, but that people are coming in and asking them questions and asking them to tell their story. And then it's being synthesized and, and packaged by outside people. And I just thought, well, why, what if we were to turn the tables around and really put research, uh, this whole research idea just spin it around on its head and say, well, what if, what if communities were in the driver's seat? What if community members were actually leading the storytelling process and actually deciding what gets put onto the map and how that story gets told? And this is where this whole discipline of Indigenous mapping has emerged, is the idea that in Indigenous communities should be the one holding that pen, deciding what get, gets included on the map and what gets excluded. And, uh, you know, the idea of a map can be so powerful. And that's what I love about cartography is, is that a really well-designed map with really good information can be told so that anyone that's looking at it, it doesn't matter what your background is, you can understand what the story is being told. And so a really well-organized and well-defined map can do just that. And so I thought, well, why don't we just start training Indigenous peoples on how to use these technologies and helping to identify what that story is that's being told and then just see what happens, see, see what the story is that, that emerges from that process. 
And so for me, that's where Indigenous mapping has really begun is is the idea of uh, Indigenous peoples being in the driver's seat, holding that pen and deciding what gets put onto that map. Yeah. So can you talk about maybe some of those early projects when you were still kind of trying to figure out what that process might look like, how it might be different than the mapping that you were doing before? Yeah. What were what were some of those early projects like? Well, as I mentioned, I, I had to spend quite some time learning about mapping and learning about the use of GIS and how it fits into these other disciplines and within the natural resources realm, within the economic development realm. Just realizing that there's all these different ways to tell a story through a map. And so I really surrounded myself with people that were already working in that field and really tried to better understand what that story could be. And then uh, about in 2010, a couple of friends of mine uh, and I decided we wanted to put our skills together and work with communities. We all had kind of varying levels of experience and uh, disciplines that um, that had been working in this realm of community-based research. So we decided to form uh, a company called the Firelight Group. And uh, we were working, one of our first projects was in the Tar Sands region of Alberta. And we were trying to, we were asked by the communities to do a research project that said, well, they wanted to understand the water levels and the impacts that the oil sands were having on the depleted water resource in their territory. Mm -hmm. And so... We had worked on a mapping project where we were interviewing community members to better understand their knowledge of the river, to understand what those hazards might be that they were encountering while they were out on the river in their boats, and, and document all of these places. And what that turned out to be was a research project that identified uh, a base flow of water. And so what is the level of water that's safe to travel uh, and navigate through the territory? And then what's the extreme level that is now affecting their ability and their rights to be able to do that? And all of this emerged from a mapping exercise that where we interview people and ask them about their experiences out on uh, the landscape and, and, and on the waters and we were able to better understand what the impacts were. And the way we did this research was we were using these big, large paper maps that we'd roll out onto the onto a big table. And we had these clear mylar sheets that would sit on top of the maps. And we would, what we called geo-reference, and we'd kind of line them up to the map and draw these little crosshairs on the map. So that way... When we took that mylar off, we could then reproduce that information and all the drawn features that were uh, identified. And it was through this experience that I realized there has to be a better way. There has to be a more efficient way of doing mapping than this. Because at the end of that exercise, after interviewing, it was about up to 15 people from each of the, we were working with two communities. So about almost 30 interviews that produced uh, upwards of uh, 90 mylar sheets because we had oh. the whole territory broken up into four base maps and each person uh, drew on each of those four base maps. And I had to then scan all those and then bring them into a GIS software to then 
reproduce all that data from those mylar sheets. And I just thought the post-processing effort was quite large and and time-consuming. And there was a potential for human error to be introduced. So this is where we decided that uh, there needs to be a different way of doing this type of mapping. And in 2011, we stumbled upon a software called Google Earth that was produced by Google. And it was a mapping software. And up until that point, it was a little bit clunky. I'd heard about it. But they were developing it at such a rapid pace that the next time I checked it out a few months later, they had all these new drawing functionalities. And then the next time, there's the measuring functionalities. And and they just kept coming out with different releases of this software. And I did an evaluation of the process and said, well, what if we were to go through a a directed digital mapping exercise where when we're interviewing community members, instead of drawing it onto the maps that are laid out on the table, what if we put the map up onto a wall, like project the image of the map up onto the wall, and the participant points to those values using a laser pointer, and we produce that right directly onto the software. And that information would be stored locally on your computer, so you wouldn't have to worry about it being uploaded to the internet or anything like that. It was stored right on your hard drive. But then throughout that process, we could zoom into the map and get more detail, and we can get more accuracy and precision. We could actually see the outlines of buildings and tree lines, and you could see different uh, landscape features in a much more kind of bird's eye view. And so we decided to adjust our methodology of doing this paper mapping exercise to then producing a direct-to-digital mapping exercise. And we realized at the end of that mapping exercise that the post-processing effort was reduced to from a few months of, uh, of work in the former process to a few hours uh, mm-hmm. of cleaning up the data and organizing it and doing that quality control. And uh, we just realized that this is the way of the future in changing the way that we think about mapping and we think about data collection. Well, you're definitely getting me thinking about (laughs) some things that I want to do differently in our projects from now on. So (laughs) this is helpful for me personally. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious, the initial reaction of the elders that you were working with, uh, the tribal representatives that you were working with, obviously there was buy-in because they were hiring you, but I imagine there may have been varying reactions within the people that you worked with. Um, what was what were their reactions to, to using or applying cultural information in this sort of way? So we work within the realm of impact assessment. So what that means is that we work with communities that are dealing with large-scale energy, and those types of industrial developments are regulated by the government. And so anytime that there's a new project that hits a certain size and magnitude, it needs to go through a rigorous exercise of understanding what the impacts are that that project might have on things like air, water, wildlife. But one of the elements that they need to address are the impacts to Indigenous peoples. And in Canada, we have these things, this thing called the Constitution. And in that Constitution, uh, there's a section there that protects Indigenous peoples, Section 35. And so we take a rights-based lens of understanding um, what the impacts are from these large-scale developments. 
But the pace at which these projects move is so rapid. So as soon as a project comes online, it kickstarts this timeline. And there's various phases within that process. Um, but each bit has a very short time period in which you have to participate if you're interested in, in influencing what the outcomes of that project might be. And so that's the realm in which we work. And when we come to a community and we say, well, we're working with the community, the community's hired us to do this work. But in order to get something at least on the record from the community's perspective, we need to work in, a, in this very particular way in order to get this research completed. And so there was at first, I think there was a bit of um, I wouldn't say hesitancy, but there was definitely curiosity with the process in terms of um, what that might look like. Uh, there was a lot of education around understanding what that method would be. And so we put a lot of effort into uh, educating the communities that we work with to say, okay, here's here's what the process looks like. So when we we were brought in by a particular community, we'd always say, well, let's host a community meeting. Let's introduce the firelight group to the community and let's introduce what the process is and what this project that they're currently evaluating and let's understand really what matters most to that community and it's through this initial exercise that we really get to learn from each other so we're learning from the community about the things that matter most and the community is learning from us in terms of how we're going to go through this process of collecting this information and how we're going to package it up and what the ultimate outcomes of the research might be. And so that's a really great opportunity for us to approach this research and provide that perspective of how we're going to do it. The second part of the process is that we will train community members to be participants and active researchers. And so the idea is, is that we'll hire people from the community to be part of the research process. They'll be part of the mapping exercise. They'll help us organize the interviews. They'll help identify participants who will come in. And they'll be active researchers in the whole exercise. And we'll train them on how to do the mapping and how to set up the whole all the computer equipment and, and do that exercise. So not only are we introducing the project, but we're also creating this capacity that we're doing some skills enhancement through this research. And then when participants come in and they see it all set up, we have a very kind of, we try to ensure that the room is organized in a way that it's not too messy, that we create a really nice research environment. We offer participants coffee or tea or some food or a snack. And it becomes an ultimately a conversation. And we talk about the, that person's experience on the land in those particular places where that project is going to be developed. And the mapping is kind of introduced very subtly. We, we're looking at the map image. We have very clear labels and, and features that are identified to help orient the participant to where they're looking at. To tell you the truth, it's one of these things that kind of has evolved that people just become like oh yeah that that's how we do it this is this is the, the firelight's coming in and we're going to do this research and i'm going to point out a bunch of places on the map and they're going to record my experiences and they're going to take what i say as being truth and they're going to honor that truth in a way that's 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 honest and they're going to bring that back to us and they're going to tell us how uh, how they're integrating that into this process 
And, and that's ultimately what we're trying to do is create a positive research environment for people that it's pleasant, it's, it's inviting, and, and people come in and feel like they're welcome and they're comfortable and what they say matters. And we do this research in a way that allow for the participants to know that we're going to do something with that that it, it's not just going to go onto a computer or it's not going to go into a report and sit on a shelf, but that we're going to use that information and push that knowledge and, and use that knowledge to push the community's priorities forward in the, whatever process that they're dealing with. And so after the research exercise with that participant, we they'll, ultimately what happens is that people talk in communities and they say, hey, did you go do that interview? And and someone will say, yeah, I did the interview and you should go do it. And the people will often tell their friends. And after about a week of us being in the community, it's it's almost to the point where we are have created almost an expectation that people will want to be a part of that exercise and they'll want to be in that in that research process. And oftentimes, it's it's one of those things that, in some cases, some communities haven't been heard up until this point. Some people haven't had their voice heard. And so this research process that we've designed is, is a way, it's ultimately a form of healing. People come to the interview and share some things that they haven't been able to say before, or that maybe they have said and, and no one's really listened it's a really exciting process. And, and so we've had some experiences with some communities where we've done 20 or 30 studies with them over the years because we designed it in a way that really focused on what the community members have to say and that we take the, that those things as almost truth and gospel and that we say this is what matters most and we package that up in ways that that say, well, we heard you, and this is what we heard, and this is how we presented it, and how do we how do we make it better if it doesn't meet your expectations? And so we go through after that research, we go through a community verification to say, here's all the maps that were generated, here's the reports, here's what people had to say, are there things missing? How do we course correct the work that we've done to this point uh, before we finalize a report with the community? So oftentimes. Communities love this exercise, and they they love the process of uh, being heard and the process of actually adding those va- values to the map. And many times, community some community members haven't thought of this thing these things as important. No one's ever asked them, "Well, what's it like to live out on the land, or what's it like to pick medicines, or what is it like to go hunt and fish?" and and for many community members, that's just a way of life, and it's just how they've always lived, and no one's seen that as something of being of value. And so when we come along and we start asking these questions, oftentimes people are like, well, this is obvious. This is our way of life. <laughs> they've never really been asked these questions before. And so this is where mapping can be transformative in allowing a community to be in the driver's seat and deciding what gets put onto that map and how that story gets to be told. And that, that's the really exciting part. And many community members, I think out of the thousands of interviews that I've done, I've had a handful of people that said, I don't like the mapping process. Uh, but for the majority of people, I would say 
it's been a very positive research experience. Yeah, I'm just sitting here nodding my head the whole time. This is why it's it's too bad we don't have the video going because yes, absolutely, I agree with everything you just said. So we're we're already at our first break point. But before we go, you know, what you were just talking about there, you were talking about building trust and respect, uh, mutual respect and community-based work and how that leads to this really transformative mapping process. And so I'd like to, when we get back from the break, talk some more about maybe if there's any cases where you've seen the community really take that tool and uh, come up with a new way that they want to see it used or really, you know, made the the tool of mapping their own. Absolutely. So on that note, we will be right back. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months, or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. We are back from our break. So... I'm going to dive back into that question that I started asking right before the break, which is basically since this time that you've you've been building these relationships, building that trust, how have you seen tribes that you've worked with really take these mapping tools and, and make them their own? Well, we've been working on many of these projects across the country. In Canada, there's a lot of industrial development. Uh, it supports the GDP. And so there's many communities that are involved in this exercise of collecting data and presenting evidence as part of that process. So we've been helping Indigenous peoples gain a voice in that process. And it's been really important because communities are sharing their experiences of, of use of the resources and, and of their territories and where they're going out on the landscape. And many communities have asked us, to adapt the method in various ways. So we we initially started out as the direct digital process where we're sitting at a table, we're looking at a screen 
and capturing that information. And, and now communities are like, well, we'd like to actually get out on the landscape and, and talk about these places. So we've adapted the method to actually do some of this work in the field where communities are going out and recording these experiences when they're on the landscape and they're using similar data collection techniques but in the field. So they're using their iPhone or they're using their iPad or they're using a, a laptop and they're actually adapting the methodology and going out into onto the landscape where these projects are and, and capturing that information. And then since the since COVID-19 has begun uh, and many communities have been in a, a lockdown type situation where it's, it's unsafe for people to travel into the community, they, we've had to adapt the method in order to be able to do this work remotely. So we've actually designed a methodology where we can do this using open source tools like Zoom or WebEx. And we can do it all through the computer and we can actually uh, go through an interview process that's facilitated using screen sharing techniques and capture that information. And so many communities have been willing to adapt the method and apply it in different ways that suit their needs. And this this kind of got me thinking uh, in about 2014, I started thinking, well, if we want more communities to be doing this type of work, we should actually host an Indigenous mapping workshop. And the whole idea around the workshop would be to train people on this technique and train people on how to do mapping and how to apply these tools. And we partnered with Google early on to uh, use some of the Google mapping tools that were available. And we brought people together to learn about how to apply these tools and share these stories. And that, that really kind of kick-started the Indigenous Mapping Workshop. The real impetus was, was that people weren't really talking about this and there was a lot of interest in the need for Indigenous mapping and we just thought, well, let's have an Indigenous-led workshop that allow for communities to have a safe space to talk about these issues in a way that they aren't feeling like they're being preyed upon by government or industry or by consulting groups, but that they could actually have a safe space to talk about the process of making the map and the how to tell that story and be able to share ways in which they're presenting that story to outside or external agencies. And so that's that's what started this workshop where we would train people and, let, and let's actually make it an exercise where people could actually have practical skills when they walk away. So rather than going to a conference and seeing a bunch of talking heads, not that that's, that's a bad thing, but how do we make it practical that people could actually walk away and say, okay, I just learned something and now I've got the skills to ad- apply this in my own community when I go home, like as soon as they get home. And so we designed a curriculum that allowed for us to not only hear stories of Indigenous people that are using maps to tell stories, but also then to inspire people to actually go out and make those maps. And we help facilitate these training workshops that allow for them to actually be in the driver's seat to do that mapping process. And we would put all the curriculum online. It would be all available. And so as soon as they get home, if they were kind of stumbling or if they forgot something about the workshop, they could go to this website, they could actually, you know, see all the training curriculum and then they can go at it at their own pace and and go through that process and learn these skills. And so we've been running this workshop on an annual basis uh, here in Canada. We've done it in Vancouver and in 
Waterloo at Google Canada's headquarters. We did it in uh, Winnipeg, my hometown. We've done it up in the far north in the Nuvik. And all the while we've been doing this, we've also gained international attention from Indigenous groups from around the globe. And we were invited to put on a, a, a workshop in an um, Aotearoa in New Zealand with the Maori tribes. And so I partnered with a, a good friend of mine uh, named Mocha Apatee and, uh, and Google. And we put on a workshop. Uh, we had about 100 people show up in, uh, in, in the city called Hamilton. And it was a really amazing experience to hear about how Indigenous peoples in another part of the world are using mapping to tell their stories. And then we were invited to go to Australia to Sydney and uh, there was a group of indigenous Aboriginal groups who were also doing mapping uh, and had different applications of mapping. And and so we ran some workshops in Australia. And so it's kind of created this life of its own of teaching people on a global basis on how to make maps. Got to get you here to the U S <laughs> so I can go. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So um, obviously you have an indigenous mapping workshop coming up in November. I believe it's the first through the fifth. Is that correct? Yes. November 1st to 5th. And it's a virtual event. And we've partnered with technology firms such as Google, Esri, Mapbox, NASA, and a number of other community-based organizations. And it's, we, we anticipate uh, upwards of about a thousand people joining for this uh, five-day hands-on workshop. Yeah. Is that is that something that you're planning on doing in the future as well, like having maybe an in-person version and a remote version, or was this just COVID? Well, when COVID happened, we had to adapt. We had to pivot really quickly in order to be able to continue teaching people. Because here's the thing about mapping and GIS is that the technology is changing so fast. Mm-hmm. And how we do mapping is is occurring at a very rapid pace the tools that are being that are coming out uh, uh, not only on your computer but on also on your mobile devices and so uh, being able to provide relevant training to apply those tools is really important and so for last year and this year we've had to go to a virtual environment but uh, we're hoping that in the future that we can go back to our in-person events and maybe maybe potentially a hybrid of still having an in-person event, but also having it, people being able to join virtually. Yeah. Okay. So specifically for this Indigenous Mapping Workshop coming up, what, what kind of topics are going to be covered? What kind of events? Uh, you know, if, if you were someone that was interested in going, what, what could you expect? Well, the, the workshop is really exciting because the way we've designed it, the, the format is, is that we want to be able to hear uh, from Indigenous communities and how they're applying these tools and technologies. And so we've got a, a process for, uh, we've got a whole uh, series of presentations of uh, leading Indigenous experts that are uh, in this field of Indigenous mapping that are using maps and telling stories in, in interesting ways And then we've got a whole technical session of our technology partners showing people how to go through that process of actually making the maps. And so we're going to have a mix of panel presentations of presenters and some lightning talks uh, and hearing from communities and how they're actually using maps. And hopefully that will inspire people to think 
about the various ways in which we tell a story through maps. And then we've got the whole hands-on section of if you want to learn how to do this using open source tools, or if you want to use some of these proprietary tools, we've got a whole series of training uh, that are going to be offered throughout the whole five days. And so it's a free event for Indigenous peoples. We have a collective. It's called the Indigenous Mapping Collective. And so if you wanted to join, you can join the collective. And it's a free event for collective members. Okay. And so if you go to indigenousmaps.com, all of the information is at that website. Okay. So it's free for Indigenous people. Is it open to non-Indigenous people as well on a paid level? And what kind of GIS skills or Google Maps skills would be helpful to have going in? Like, do people need to have some of the basics down or could you go in pretty starting from zero? Yeah, so we have uh, a few different tracks. So there's a beginner's track. So someone who might be computer literate, but may have never done mapping before. And then we have more an advanced track where people have been doing mapping and and want to learn different tools and want to apply those tools in different ways. And so we generally provide the training under these two tracks from our partners, our technology partners, uh, they're designing the curriculum to meet those various uh, spectrums of the of technological capabilities. And we're really fortunate to be working with companies like Google and Esri. Uh, we're also working with the Canadian Space Agency, NASA, and Mapbox, and ComIT. And so uh, they're really designing curriculum to look at maps uh, through these various lenses and these various tools. And then we also have uh, our community partners. So we've partnered with the Geo-Indigenous Alliance, the First Nations Development Institute, the Cultural Conservancy, the First Nation Land Management Resource Centre, the National Aboriginal Lands Managers Association, and First Nations University of Canada. And the idea is is that we want to make sure that the curriculum that we design is culturally relevant and and it's designed in a way that is meaningful for communities. So we have these community partners to help guide our programming and guide how we're putting the workshop on. And then I think the other part of your question related to uh, whether it's free or uh, paid. And um, so we have a collective website. It is free for Indigenous peoples. And so you can register online at IndigenousMaps.com and that'll take you to our collective website. And then if you are from an educational institute or a government agency or consulting firm or anything that's not necessarily an Indigenous organization, there is a small fee to join. But then once you're a part of the collective, you're able to get access to the Indigenous mapping workshops that are put on. And I I do have to say that we have this big event, which we anticipate a lot of people to attend. But we also, throughout the year, we have a monthly uh, webinar-style workshop where we introduce various tools and technologies and approaches uh, on a month-to-month basis. So the membership uh, provides you access to all of that. Nice. Okay. And is that the the collective or does the collective have other components as well? So basically there's this Indigenous Mapping Workshop and then the Indigenous Mapping Collective. And is, is that part that you just mentioned with the, the webinars and is that the collective? Yeah. So the part where the membership is 
metaphors for the collective. And the Indigenous Mapping Workshop is one event of that, that is part of the collective. Okay. And what, so you have the, the webinars also on a monthly basis. Are there other things that come with being part of the collective? Yeah, I think you get access to us, all of the members. We have a number of discussion boards where people often ask questions about various techniques and approaches. And uh, there's a discussion that allow for people to share some of that knowledge. And so uh, you get access to the network, which is upwards of about uh, uh, 1,500 members at this point. Yeah, so the Indigenous Mapping Workshop, that's coming up pretty soon in a couple of weeks from when this airs, I believe. So if you are interested, go to indigenousmaps.com and sign up. It sounds amazing. And I'm, I'm curious, it, it already sounds like a really great workshop and resource, and I'm definitely interested in signing up for the collective and, and going to one in the future. What else would you like to do with the workshop in the future? Do you have any future goals or hopes um, for what that workshop or the collective could be in the future? Absolutely. When, I, when we started this workshop, the whole idea was to create this safe space for people to learn these technologies, to be able to talk about mapping, uh, to create a discipline of Indigenous mapping. And the whole idea is, is that we wanted it to be Indigenous-led and we wanted to learn about how communities across the country are applying these technologies. But I also wanted to hear about how Indigenous communities on a global basis are applying these technologies, which is why we went to Aotearoa and which is why we went to Australia and we've been invited to go to these other places around the globe. And so my goal is, is to build a global Indigenous mapping community and to be able to create a support system for communities uh, that might be wanting to start their own Indigenous mapping projects that they can have a group of people that they can uh, ask questions, that they can reach out to, that they can get that expertise support from other Indigenous communities. And so that was ultimately what my long-term goal was, is to not only learn and share about how Indigenous communities here in Canada are, are applying these tools, but how are other communities in other parts of the world applying these tools and how can we adapt our processes to include those communities' approaches and so we're at a point now where we've run a number of these workshops and my goal is, is to actually create a certification program that people can then become certified as uh, with this Indigenous mapping uh, certificate. And so we've been working with the First Nations University of Canada to develop the curriculum in a way that communities can go through this and, and actually get that recognition. And so it's it's moving in that direction to have uh, Indigenous mapping as an actual discipline. Very cool. So would that be something then that you would hope to expand, you know, beyond uh, that university in Canada? Like something that ultimately you'd like to see in universities across the world as, as a full discipline, like you're saying? Absolutely. I'd love for people to learn about how Indigenous communities are uh, uh, telling their story. And I think that's a big part of reconciliation is learning from communities about their histories and about their experiences and, and actually having that integrated within uh, curriculums 
not only in, in the natural resources sector, but in history and in how we talk about Indigenous communities, rather than being a relic of the past, but that they're a, an active contribution to our uh, society today. And so I feel like mapping can help tell that story. And I'm curious to see how Indigenous peoples, not only here in my, in, in my backyard, but also around the globe, how people are uh, affecting that change. And so it's really exciting. Um, we're at a point in our time where where we're talking about things like reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, and we're talking about the recognition of those rights of Indigenous peoples. And so I just feel that mapping is one tool in a, in a toolbox that you might be able to use to be able to tell that story. All right. Well, we are at our second break point. It goes so fast, <laughs> but we will be right back here in a moment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Okay, back from our last break. And we we talked in the first part about your journey in learning about doing community-based mapping. And then we talked about the Indigenous Mapping Workshop. And now I want to kind of take a step back again and go back to, again, you've alluded to this along the way, but let's let's do a deeper dive into what the importance is of indigenizing the map and doing this kind of community-based mapping work. Well, when I think about indigenizing the map, I think about what it means to have that community buy-in And I think it's critical for any community-led initiative to gain recognition of the process and spark that interest through the needs uh, of the community. And so when we talk about indigenizing the map, I think about all of the things that go into the process of mapping, such as gaining that community buy-in, engaging and informing those uh, members ensuring that you're producing specific and measurable outcomes and linking the research that you're going through to decision-making and and that you're actually building uh, and maintaining a a talent pool both inside and outside of the community. And so thinking about all these things, when I think about indigenizing the map, I think about an integrated approach to research in a way that we're taking these incremental steps and uh, and approaches to how we do that research at the pace of the community that we're working with. And so that's when I think about indigenizing the map, I think about all of those things. It's a more holistic way of thinking about the process of mapping and working with the communities. Okay. 
before we started, you'd mentioned something about, you know, indigenizing the map versus decolonizing the map. Did I understand that correctly? Well, there's this process of decolonizing the map. Now, when we think about decolonizing, we think about how we've been, we've got this colonial mindset. We're so inundated with uh, this colonial mindset. And when I think about it in comparison to indigenizing uh, indigenized or indigenous communities, I think of it through a different lens. It's not about deconstructing something, but it's about reintroducing and reaffirming something that's always been there. And so when I think about indigenizing the map, I think about this longstanding relationship to space and place and people. And those cultural protocols have always been there uh, through our ceremonies and through our language and our songs and, and how we connect to territory. And so I think it's just about bringing all of those elements to the forefront and saying that we've got this longstanding Indigenous knowledge. And for so long, it's been overshadowed by these colonial processes. And it's not necessarily about decolonizing, but it's about indigenizing and, and bringing all of that longstanding wisdom to the forefront of how we think about the work that we do. And so it's just a different way of, uh, of thinking about it. And as an Indigenous person, that's really the only way that we know about it is, is to implement this way of thinking uh, how we do research and, and implement this way of how we do this type of mapping is taking what we've always known and applying it and, and applying these tools and approaches in ways that work for our communities. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I'd like to ask you about, obviously, if we're thinking about indigenizing the map, and then, like you mentioned, that uh, coming into contact with these government processes, and a lot of times there's certain ethical issues that come up in those situations where what the community would like to see doesn't fit well with what would be helpful for a government agency. So could you talk a little bit, for example, about how you address issues of confidentiality and sensitivity that come up with mapping? And then also this, what we like to call the the circle on a map problem when it comes to mapping for, in response to, to government actions. So I think the first question about ethics, I think you need to ensure that uh, when working with Indigenous peoples that that you need to take into consideration a principle called free prior and informed consent. And this principle means that you're, the consent of the community to participate is given for free, it's voluntary, the information about the process is given in advance, that the community members are informed about that, and at the end of the day that they're giving actual consent to participate. And we, th- we believe that if you don't have that consent up front, that you really shouldn't be doing that research. And so with Indigenous peoples, it allows them to give or withhold that consent for any project that may affect them or uh, things that are happening in their territory. And it allows for Indigenous peoples to be able to negotiate the conditions under which a project might be designed implemented, monitored, or evaluated. 
And so it's not just a process of earning consent, but also the ability for Indigenous peoples to conduct their own independent and collective discussions and decision making. We often, before we even start a, a research process, we have to explain the who, what, where, when, why, and how that research is being captured and how everyone is involved in that process. And we need to design the research that really makes sure that we're ensuring uh, that confidentiality and usage protocols are being addressed uh, as part of the research outputs. So we ensure that, that, like before we even carry out any research, we need to ensure that uh, the way we're doing that research is ethical. And if it's not, then I think at that point, you need to stop and rethink about how you're going about it and decide whether or not that's something that the community is able to buy into. So to address the question about the circle on the map, and this is the challenge where you're taking two different types of worldviews. You've got this these methods that address the Western science approach, and you've got this community knowledge, this indigenous knowledge, and you're trying to braid these two knowledge systems together. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. And when you think about Indigenous knowledge, some of the key features of Indigenous knowledge are that it's adaptive, that it's irreplaceable, it's interconnected, it's cumulative, intergenerational, it's geographically centric, it's temporally dynamic. And when you think about all those elements, it's very hard to capture everything on a map. And so when we think about the mapping process, we think about how it applies to various individuals and their knowledge and their experiences. And we also understand that we simply cannot capture everything within one person's life. It's literally impossible to record all of those within a few hour interview. And so we ensure that that's explicit and upfront for communities to understand that what we're capturing is our anchor points to a much broader practice. And so when we think about the map and we think about you know the, the, the sites that we place on the map, those points and the lines and the polygons or areas on the maps, those are anchor points to a much broader practice. And they're reflective of what that participants' experience is and what they feel is important to capture. And and we make sure that in our reports or in on the maps, we indicate that uh, the information is not a complete set and that the map is a living document and it's subject to change over time. And it's only reflective of a small proportion of the community. And had we actually talked to every single member who is living, and then we integrated that to every member who uh, is no longer here. I mean, you could see that the map would be quite full, but that's obviously within these processes and within the timelines that we're given, we can't do that. And so we ensure that those caveats are upfront and clear before we actually start talking about those ma- those features on the map. And in the past, when we saw those features displayed on the map, there are certain, what you call it, scientific indicators for map quality. And so 
You can measure whether or not they check the box for Western science approaches. And what we've realized is that some of the some of the some of the indicators included who reported it, what the activity was, where it was located, and when the activity took place. And under uh, a fellow named Terry Tobias, he wrote a book called Living Proof. And this is the process for use in occupancy mapping. And he coined that term of data diamonds as like the, uh, every site on the map that you see needs to at least check these boxes. And so when we went through these exercises of mapping, we realized that there are so many more indigenous spatial data quality indicators that need to be taken into consideration in addition to those four and we transform the diamond to a star, which is more epistemologically correct for indigenous peoples in that there, there's a relational aspect to those sites. There's the ecological knowledge of those sites. There's the kinship ties and the indigenous knowledge transfer that happens at each of those places. And so we turn these data diamonds into data stars in order to reflect that indigenous knowledge and traditional land use. And so when you see a map and you see those values on the map, I think it's important as a reader of the map to know that those are just a reflection of a small proportion of the knowledge that's actually in the community and that those, those, there's those limitations that need to be understood when reading a map. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to dive a little bit deeper into this confidentiality or sensitivity issue. So for example, let's say you're working with a First Nation or a tribe in the US and there's a potential development going in, right? And let's say that there's a shrine or an emergence place or something like that, that is located somewhere within the area of potential effect, as we call it here in the US. And Obviously, that's an issue where maybe not even everyone within the community is allowed to know that knowledge, let alone outside people. But the destruction of that kind of place would be catastrophic. So is there have you found any sort of solutions in your work up till now on how to address a situation like that, where if there's any sort of way that it can be like have the result of, of not getting destroyed without sharing too much? Have you found anything that's that's been successful? We think that lines on maps matter because it gives communities an opportunity to share a different perspective of space and place. And here in Canada, Indigenous peoples have constitutionally protected rights. And those rights include things like uh, the right to culture, social, political, and economic opportunities, the right to land, the right to logging, the right to fish, hunt, and practice one's own culture, and the right to establish and enforce treaties. And and there's been Canadian case law that has affected that Indigenous Crown relationship. And when we think about those places, and that has to do with how much consultation is given to a community. We think of it like a spectrum. There's at the low end of the spectrum, at the high end of the spectrum, and depending on your claim to that area, you either might be at the low end or you might have a strong claim at the other end of the spectrum where you actually have 
uh, proven rights and that there's a shared decision making and shared resources and shared implementation. And so depending on where an Indigenous community lies within that spectrum will determine what kind of research and what kind of information might be used to uh, be able to make those decisions. Um, when we think about communities that are trying to present that information, depending on where they land within that spectrum, if they've already proven their rights, being able to say whether or not they have access to the territory and being able to you know, have to prove that through these independent processes, that's already been proven. They don't actually need to necessarily share anything because they've already proven those rights. The communities at the lower end of the spectrum need to go through an exercise that engages their community to be able to collect that information. And, and when we think about that process of collecting information, again, we're thinking of a spectrum. There's a spectrum of that public participation, whether you're not just informing the community or whether you're consulting them, all the way to empowering the community at the deeper end of that participation. And so when we're thinking about uh, the type of information that you're presenting and how you package that up has a number of different factors that need to be considered in advance before that exercise takes place. But we think that there's some principles that need to be acknowledged and enforced uh, through that in community engagement and that we think that that research needs to be designed in collaboration with those community-based champions we think that the research needs to be participatory, that it needs to be inclusive and transparent, and that we're innovative and looking for new methods and tools that enable community, community members to participate and to be flexible, recognizing that each community is different and has their own unique needs. When you're thinking about the, the type of information that gets presented and how you present that information, needs to take into consideration some of these factors. And then once you get to that point, once you decide how that information will be collected and packaged up, the community needs to decide what story they're telling. And so in some cases, especially if it's like a large-scale energy development and it might be going to a court-like setting, there are certain ways in which you'll package your research to be able to suit that audience. So in that case, you're talking to some sort of arbitrator and a bunch of lawyers, and they're arguing the merits of the research, and you need to present it to a very specific audience. And so how you collect that information, you have to think about who the end users are and how they're going to be applying this information or, or making a decision with this information. If you're going to be Putting it into a public forum where you're maybe you're telling a story and it's an educational tool, then you might take the research that you go through and package that up differently and have it presented in a way that can be consumed by a broader audience. And that might be like on the internet or that might be on posters or on murals or other different kind of ways in which you might share that information. And so the two types of outputs that would come out of this will be very different depending on who your audience is. And I think that's really an important question up front before you carry out your mapping exercise is to really understand who that audience is 
and then prioritize your focus to be able to talk to that audience and be able to say, well, let's design our research to speak to this particular audience. But also being flexible to be able to say, well, if we want to use it for these other purposes, let's ensure that we can have enough information to to do that as well. So, so not necessarily be limited in how you do it, but thinking about the various ways in which you might tell that story. And so, like I say, if you're trying to navigate a regulatory regime and assert your rights and push for strong kind of mitigation that reflects uh, that reduces the impacts on those rights or you might be going to negotiate with the company or litigate then making sure that you have good solid information to be able to do that and so uh, and then for the education of public purposes and uh, making sure that you're connecting with back with the community to say here's how we're taking the information that you've shared with us and here's how we're presenting it is this reflective of your understanding of the knowledge that we're and how we're synthesizing it and breaking it down is that is that okay and letting the community be in the driver's seat to decide what gets publicly consumed and what is not for public consumption yeah so unfortunately we're already at the end here but i do want to to give one last opportunity i'd i'd love to hear some about some of the projects that you've done that have been, you know, particularly successful or creative, maybe on the the public outreach side, but just some sort of of project that you feel like you came out of and and you were particularly excited or proud about. So we've had a number of examples of braiding that indigenous knowledge in Western science, and we've worked with communities that have been dealing with large scale hydro developments. And being able to capture that information and tell that story has been important for uh, several of those First Nations that are have had to go to court and to prove their rights. And we, by th- it's through this exercise that we've learned uh, many things about how to do that research and how to reflect that knowledge and how to be able to do this work in a in a in a good way with the community. Um, and that's kind of led us to other opportunities to be able to, like I say, adapt that that approach to do more mobile mapping data collection uh, and working with mobile tools with communities out in the field and then adapt those tools even further to then integrate things like drones and c- capturing drone imagery to to uh, better understand you know those values that might be in a particular area. And integrating all these various tools to be able to tell that story of space and place, I think, has been uh, one of the most exciting things for me is is, is taking uh, what communities uh, know about their, their own backyards and being able to find different ways in which we tell that story. And then being able to communicate that to a, a, an audience to ensure that, that community, those communities' uh, rights have been reflected and I, I just think that if you do all of that work in, in a way that's honest and you engage a community uh, in a way that allows them to hold the, the pen and uh, they're given a voice, they're defining what the process works for them, they're more engaged on the issues and they have the data to be able to weigh the pros and cons of particular developments. And it strengthens their position if they're going to court. 
and they are able to maybe negotiate good agreements with those developers to be good neighbors. And I think the outcome of all of this is that there's stronger collaboration between those Indigenous groups, those industrial developers, governments that want to proceed with these projects. And so when I think about Indigenous mapping and the engagement that goes into it, I think about all of those aspects. And it's more than just a map. It's about understanding what communities need to be able to effectively engage in these discussions and change the narrative. Absolutely. All right. Well, everyone, make sure you go check out the show notes. If you're interested in signing up for the Indigenous Mapping Workshop, which is November 1st through the 5th, go to indigenousmaps.com. There'll also be links to the Firelight Group and other things. So check out the show notes. And again, just want to say thank you, Steve, for, for coming on and sharing such a huge amount of knowledge and excited to learn more from you about Indigenous Mapping in the future. Jimmy Quetch. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Balenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fro.